Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. I, I want to give you a little bit of insight into what happens behind the scenes. During the week, the song leader will text me or call me and say, hey, do you have any special songs you want for Sunday that you think ties in with the lesson? And typically, I don't. I, I think our song leaders do a great job, and I just let them take that. And I just say, sing great songs. That's, that's all that matters. But every now and then, I'll give a couple of uh, ideas that I'd like for a song to be sung. And so David texted me this week and said, do you have any songs? And I mentioned a couple. And so then he sends out an email. And that email goes to me and Brianna, who puts it in the bulletin, and to Luke, who gets the slides together. And when he sent out the email to show his songs, number 90, Chris, We Do All Adore Thee. And I thought, that's my favorite song. I love that song. But you didn't sing it like that this morning, so I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being a part of us. I know that we get a little crowded, but at the first of the year, January 5th, we will start our concurrent service. We'll have two services. Uh, one will be in the Family Center at 9.55. One will be here at the normal time at 10 o'clock. I'll be preaching at both of those. The singing will be live at both of those. There's no piped-in video or anything like that. So we hope that uh, you can bear with the, you know, sitting a little closer together for a little while longer, but we're glad that you're here. You know, the story is told that some people went to a zoo and they noticed a cage that had a fox and four chickens. And above that cage was a sign that read, Peaceful Coexistence. And the people that were visiting were curious, and so they asked the zookeeper, they said, how, how does this work? You can live with four chickens. And the zookeeper says, well, it's not hard to maintain this arrangement. It's just every now and then we have to throw in some more chickens. And you know, that might work. That might work in the animal kingdom. It doesn't work in churches. You know, when you get married, you're actually marrying three people, aren't you? You're marrying the person that you think you're marrying. You're marrying the person that you're actually marrying. And you're marrying the person that that person will become. And the person you're marrying is marrying three people, which is why marriage can be difficult sometimes, because six people are involved. And the same is true with church. When you place membership at a local congregation, you're placing membership with three churches. The church you think you're placing membership with, the church you're actually placing membership with, and the church that it's going to become in the future. The problem is, we want perfection when we place membership at the church. In fact, we demand it. In no other realm of life do we demand perfection, but when it comes to church and placing our membership with the church, we want perfection. But that pursuit of the perfect church is empty, it's hollow, it's futile, because you will never find the perfect church. And like I've said a hundred times, the reason you'll never find it is because it's a unicorn, it doesn't exist, only in fantasy. The perfect church doesn't exist because people are involved. So if you find the perfect church, leave immediately because you're going to ruin it. <laughs> when it comes to church, for some reason, we want and demand perfection. That church that we go to on vacation that we know is perfect, we've been there one time, but we're certain that it's perfect. No, stay there a month. They've got issues too. Every church does because people are involved and where you have people you have problems. There simply is no such thing as the perfect church. Even the first church wasn't perfect. 
Although the church that we read about in the book of Acts had some wonderful qualities, it also had a couple of liars by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. It had some, it had some Hellenistic Jews that their needs were not being met, and so they complained. I mean, it, it wasn't perfect either. The church never has been, nor ever will be, perfect because there are no perfect people. Actually, let me back up a second and say this. There is a sense in which the church is perfect. We can find the perfect church in Scripture. In fact, you find it in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, you heard me right. I said Corinthians. The first Corinthian letter that Paul wrote shows us that the church is perfect. Notice what it says, verses 2 and following. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth was perfect. And I realize that's a bold statement, but I know what I'm talking about here because you can see it right here. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Whose church was it? What was God's church? And that's what made it perfect. Paul starts by putting these people in their place. You belong to God. It's his church. And you need to recognize that. We all need to recognize that. It's not the church of, of the holy apostles. It's not the church of St. Paul. It is the church of God. Paul doesn't start with the issues. And there were a lot of them. In between the opening of 1 Corinthians and the end of it, he basically says, you people are a mess. But he starts not with problems, but with possession. He starts by establishing whose church it is. Then he addresses the issues later, but he starts by talking about ownership. The fact that it belongs to God. You know, it's funny because you know, of all the problems the Corinthian church had, there's a lot of churches that exist today, and I hope that we're not one of them. We wouldn't fellowship that church. We wouldn't have anything to do with them. Paul loved them. God loved them. But we wouldn't have anything to do with them, right? That, that should be telling as well. You see, Paul opens his letter to this church by pointing out the divine side. And the divine side is perfect. Nothing that needs to change there. It is perfect. Paul basically says, for the rest of this letter, you people are a mess. But he starts by talking about how the divine side is perfect. And among other things, this should tell us, that there is no perfect church from the human side. That while we may demand perfection, we're demanding something that is fantasy. You've ever seen a unicorn? Maybe in a picture, right? But you've never seen one in person because they don't exist. It's like Bigfoot, Yeti, whatever. Mythical creatures, right? What we're talking about here is something that doesn't exist and something that instead of pursuing perfection, we should be seeking to be healthy, and to be the best that we can possibly be with what God has given us, right? Some people would say, well, what about Acts chapter 2? What about Acts chapter 4? The first church, it was perfect. No, I, I wouldn't say that at all. I would say that Acts 2 and Acts 4 describe a healthy church. Doesn't, doesn't describe a perfect church. Suppose a friend of yours refuses to eat, and you say to him that it's important that you eat a healthy diet, it's important for your overall health, and your friend responds by saying there's no such thing as a perfect meal. And you say, well, that may be true, but there's a huge difference between starvation and good food. I mean, there's no perfect restaurant. 
you can go to a restaurant and you can get you know, some decent food, you know, the, the waiter or the waitress may be really good or really bad, the music may be really good or really bad, the ambiance may be really good or really bad, but what truly matters when you go to a restaurant, it's the food, right? That's really what you judge a restaurant on, is how good the food is. Same is true with the church. Church can have great singing, they can have a, a, a great minister, they can have a lot of great things going on, but ultimately you're going to judge a church by the quality of their Christians that attend there. And if the Christians are not of good quality, if they're not bearing good fruit, then chances are you're not going to stay there. You're not going to go back. A healthy church recognizes that it's not perfect. It can't be perfect because human beings are involved. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Although we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are flawed individuals. You all know that. Sanctification is a beautiful process, but it's also a messy process. Because human beings are involved. The church was God's design. Jesus died for it. And therefore, Paul and others fought for her unity, her soundness, her purity. It's not the divine side that needs work. That side's perfect. It's the human side that often needs to be addressed. You know, it always amuses me when people idealize the first church. And they say, we just need to get back to being the first church. And I always think, okay, well, which one? Because not every congregation was really good. Read through Revelation sometime and the, the letters that are addressed to the different churches there. Which one of those you want to be, right? But we've got to stop romanticizing the first church anyway. Because it certainly had its share of problems. I mean, that Corinthian letter that we referred to a while ago, you can read through it and find a whole lot of problems. But there, you know, there was hypocrisy, there was elitism, there was sexual immorality, and that's just a few of the issues that the first church had. And the truth of the matter is, the first church wasn't even trying to be the first church. They were trying to be like Jesus, which is what we need to be trying to be like as well. Striving to be like Jesus, following his lead, being disciples first and foremost. That brings us to our feature passage this morning. It's found in 3 John, and actually it's all of 3 John. It's a rather short epistle. Let's, let's just read it together, okay? The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth... Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church." You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from that truth itself, and we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you. But I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends 
Bane. So here we have an episode of what happens when good and evil go to the same church. Third John is the tale of three men. Two are godly, one is not. Two are seeking to be Christ-like. The third one is not so much. And first we have Gaius. And here's all you need to know about Gaius. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. You skip down to verses 5 and 6. It says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You know, it's interesting that what stands out about Gaius and his character is not the fact that he was a, a great song leader or that he wrote great blogs or that he was an eloquent speaker, but rather what stands out about him is his hospitality. And really, that's a theme a major theme here in 3 John. It's really the reason for John writing this epistle. It's all about hospitality and compassion. What you have to understand is that in the first century, traveling missionaries would go from the towns and the cities and the villages, and showing hospitality was considered a sacred duty because they needed a place to stay, they needed someone to give them food and, and, and maybe even some money and send them on their way. And so this was highly important to show hospitality. That's the crux of the epistle of 3 John. That's his reason for writing. In the days of the early church, when the church was in its infancy, there were those like Paul and others who would visit these various churches and, and try to strengthen them and encourage them and maybe deal with problems or issues that they were having. This had the potential to cause some animosity. You can imagine that everything you think is going fine in your church and these people show up to try to tell you what you need to do better and, you know, it could cause some friction. In the case of 3 John, it seems to be that some traveling missionaries are swinging by the church where Gaius is a member and this godly man is more than willing to show the hospitality that they needed. And Gaius is not alone. There's another man here that seems to be willing to do the same. His name is Demetrius. We don't know a lot about Demetrius, but here's what you need to know about him. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. You know, I get the feeling that Demetrius is one of those behind-the-scenes kind of guys, one of those unsung heroes in the church, one of those who, who just keeps his head down, stays in his lane, and does his job. You don't really ever even know he's doing much until... He's absent from church, and then you think, well, how did all this stuff get done before? Oh, it was Demetrius, right? I get the feeling that Demetrius is one of these guys who did a lot behind the curtain. You know, the Bible often deals in contrast, and Demetrius and Gaius stand in stark contrast to another man. That man's Diotrephes. Here's all you need to know about him. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. How would you like to have your name in the Bible? Well, I mean, it might be good if it's associated with good, like Enoch and Barnabas and people like that. How would you like to have your name recorded in Scripture, and the only reason it's there is because you are an absolute jerk? That wouldn't be all that good, would it? Such is the case here with Diotrephes. He finds his name in Scripture. This man loved to be first. And when you love to be first, then everyone else is going to finish last, including Jesus. 
And the Bible talks over and over again about the preeminence of Jesus and how he is the preeminent one. Colossians chapter 1, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's preeminence. That is it defined in Colossians 1.18. I read the other day that the average American eats 68 hot dogs in a year. Demetri or not Demetrius, Diotrephes. I don't know if Diotrephes ate hot dogs, but he was a hot dog. This is a guy who could strut sitting down. This is the guy who always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and wanted to be the corpse at every funeral. This is a guy that wanted the spotlight all for himself. He wanted to have a monopoly on preeminence, and Jesus was a threat to Diotrephes' preeminence. Here's his resume. Proud, self-willed, does not accept apostolic authority, broadcasts lies, unloving and unhospitable, forbids others from showing hospitality, boots people out of the church, a bully in the body. And John sums up Diotrephes' mentality with three words, manipulate, intimidate, and dominate. Diotrephes was also the kind of guy who said no to everything. He said no to John and the apostles' authority. He said no to hospitality. He said no to supporting the traveling evangelists. He said no to the truth even. He said no to those who wanted to do the right thing. His default response was no. And do you know why? Because he wanted to maintain control. And anything that threatens your control, you say no to. And no becomes your default response. I have met diatrophies in a small tiny rural town in Arkansas there's a little bitty church or at least there used to be that only had about 12 members and my friend was going there to see about preaching on a part-time basis they had no elders but one of the members there who knew my friend calls him and they set up a meeting and during the course of this so-called interview the gentleman at the church there says I, I do have to warn you we have a man here that believes that the King James Version is the only inspired version of the Bible, and he has booted people out of the church for not accepting this and not using the King James Version. And my friend said, thanks but no thanks. I don't need that trouble in my life. Have you ever wondered who baptized diatrophies? These are the weird things I think about. Who baptized diatrophies? Did he go to church? In that same place. Did he think all I've done is added a cancer to the church? Maybe he rushed him through the steps and dunked him in the water like we often do today. Maybe Diotrephes never fully understood exactly what it means to be a disciple, to be a Christian. Here's the truth though. Whoever baptized Diotrephes, the disease of Diotrephes is a cancer that can kill a church body. It's got to be dealt with. And John was willing to go and deal with it. There's a state trooper that pulled over a nun who was driving really slow on the interstate. And he comes up to the window and he says, ma'am, uh, why are you going so slow? And she says, well, I saw a sign back there that, that had a 20 on it, and I assumed that was the speed limit. And the state trooper said, oh, no, ma'am, that, that's actually the road sign. That's, that's what... That's what road you're on. You're on Interstate 20. And she said, oh, okay. And the state trooper looked in the back seat, and there were three other nuns, terrified, panic-stricken. And he looks at the one driving, and he says, 
man, what's, what's wrong with them in the back? And she goes, oh, well, we just got off of Highway 101. <laughs> you know, the driver of any car better know a few things before they get behind the wheel, right? They had better know where they are going. They better know some of the rules of the road. They better know how to get to where they're going. Otherwise, everyone riding with them is going to be affected. And I don't know if Diotrephes had an official position in the church. I don't know if he was an elder. Maybe he just assumed a title. But what I do know is that he placed himself in the driver's seat and everyone else was a passenger that was being affected. This is where we draw the contrast between the three men of 3 John. And here's something very important to note. When reading 3 John, you do so in light of 2 John and 1 John. And also the Gospel of John. Same author. And, and it's important to recognize the author's tendencies. It's important to understand his writings as a whole and not just pluck out a particular passage or verse and make it stand alone. In fact, if you were to read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John before reading the Gospel of John, it'd give you some great insight. So we take 3rd John, not in isolation, but in, in conjunction with 1st and 2nd John and also the Gospel of John. And what we see is that John is big on love, isn't he? I mean, it is something that permeates his writings. He often approaches this subject in the gospel and his letters. He's also high on the theme of light. He, he portrays Jesus as the light of the world and also as his disciples as lights in the world. 1 John 1 hits on this theme as well. Another theme is glory or glorification. We see that over and over again in the gospel of John. But also in 1 John, we see truth is a big sticking point with John. He speaks of the truth that sets men free. In John chapter 8, is on gospel. He talks about walking in the truth right here in 3 John. So love, light, glory, truth, these are all themes or concepts that John goes back to over and over again. And John is big on contrast. Light and dark, truth and error, love and hate. And John here is presenting a contrast because that's his style, and he does that again here in 3 John. Much like in all of his writings, John has this, this theme and this, this tendency. He has a favorite subject like most, most authors do. John loves writing about love. It's a big idea of his first epistle, and it bleeds in here. Take center stage. He talks about walking in truth, acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish. They have testified to your love before the church. Then he also has that contrast of good and evil here. Hospitality and taking care of the brethren is center stage in 3 John. And once again, it's love, right? Taking center stage. 3 John uses three men to draw a contrast between two concepts. Walking in the light and walking in darkness. Gaius and Demetrius illustrate walking in the light, while Diotrephes illustrates walking in darkness. Not only that, you can go back and read 1 John in its entirety. You'll find that Diotrephes stands in direct opposition to everything that John mentioned there in 1 John, especially in chapter 4. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's big. Especially when you look at the character of Diotrephes. Now, I, I need to ask this question, and maybe you've already asked it in your mind. Did Diotrephes love God? And I think, yeah. 
I think he probably did. The disease of Diotrephes can be so subtle. I think Diotrephes probably loved God. I'm going to assume that. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he thought, maybe he thought that, that he was a strong spiritual leader. Maybe he thought, well, I'm just going to save the church some money. That's why I'm going to deny these traveling missionaries. Maybe, maybe he was trying to protect the church in his mind. It can be so subtle sometimes. It may be a, a sniffle or a slight cough, but that disease, it gets into your system and can turn into a full-blown life-threatening illness. Let me ask you this. Are you the one or the two? Are you more like Gaius and Demetrius? Are you more like Diotrephes? Or consider the options maybe from John's perspective. Are you walking in light? Are you walking in darkness? Earl Weaver was the longtime manager of the Baltimore Orioles many years ago. And Earl Weaver had a temper, a pretty foul mouth. And one time he was angry and he got in the dugout and he turned over the water coolers and he took, you know, a bat and hit everything he could. He, he, he just ransacked the place. He was so mad. And after his temp, temper tantrum, one of his players, Pat Kelly, who was a professed Christian, looked at Earl Weaver and he said, I sure hope that one day you learn to walk with the Lord. And Earl Weaver responded, I sure hope one day you learn to walk with the bases loaded. But Pat Kelly was right. This discipleship thing is a walk. It's a daily walk. It's something that we commit to day in and day out. It's a long walk of obedience in a heavenly direction. According to John, it's about walking in truth. But I want to turn your attention to one more thing before we stop this morning, and it's verse 7. We read it a moment ago, and maybe you picked up on it. Verse 7 says, For they went out for the sake of the name. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it's all about. If only Diotrephes understood that. Oh, Diotrephes did it for the sake of a name, all right. Not the name, but his name. But if we could all just grasp the fact that this is not about us, it's all about the name. It's all about going out for the name. It's all about doing what we do for the name. Why are you here? Why are you worshiping? Why do you study your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you seek to evangelize? For the name, right? Not because you want the credit. You do it for the sake of the name. So I leave you with that. What's all this for? Why are you doing all of this? Is it for the sake of the name? Again, that disease of diatrophies can be very subtle. So immunize yourself now. By making certain you're walking in the light, that you love the truth, and that you're going out for the sake of the name. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to be here today, to worship you, to encourage, to edify, to strengthen, to give you praise and honor and glory that you so much deserve. As we leave this place, God, may we be changed. May we seek to change the world around us. May we seek to be a light. May we walk in the truth. And may we seek to do things for your name. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you this morning, if you have a need that we can help you with,
a lot of hurting people. The holidays are upon us. There are people that are broken and hurting because this is the first Christmas or Thanksgiving without their loved one. Many people that are dealing and struggling with illness, just look at our bulletin, you see many people that are on the prayer list because they're struggling with health issues. Some are struggling emotionally and spiritually. Maybe you want to study the Bible with someone, perhaps you're ready to walk in truth and walk in the light and you want to begin that daily walk with God this morning by putting on Christ in baptism. We want to help you. We want you as a part of this family. We love you, but more importantly, God loves you. David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.